you were here last week, we're in a series called The Good Life. And what we talked about last week was um, to have a faith that can go the distance, that lasts, um, we need to remember our first love. We read that in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And if you missed that, it's on the podcast, and I would encourage you to go uh, and uh, listen to it. Again, you can find that um, on Apple Podcasts, um, and it is there for you. Uh, but this week, we're going to talk about something a little bit different, but again, leads us to this, this concept and this thought of how do we get to the point in our life where we can live the good life, where we can live a life that what God would look at and say, that is a good life. Before we do that, I want to ask this question. Have you ever had just a rough stretch of life and you just came to the conclusion, I'm done? I'm done. My dad, whom I love very deeply, uh, was a man who instilled principles into his children. One of those was, Warren, men, don't quit. And so, from a very young age, that was instilled in us. And I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, I was about 5'7", maybe 5'8", so tall. And I maybe, on a good day, weighed 100 pounds, right? Like, that's if I ate the whole meal, right, and on had, like, a heavy jacket. I maybe weighed 100 pounds. I was so skinny. I was tall, and I was skinny, and I loved basketball, but my dad said, no, you need to try what, you need to try a couple different sports, and so um, you're not going to come home and play video games. You're going to do, you're going to be the three-sport athlete until high school, like, I don't really want to. I want to go home and, you know, hang out with my friends or play video games. He's like, that's not happening. So I'm like, all right, whatever. So I played football my seventh grade and eighth grade year of middle school. And let me just tell you, it was awful. <laughs> it was awful. The school I went to, it was a middle school and a high school on the same location, or on the same campus. And um, I think at my high school um, right now, there are six or seven guys that are currently in the NFL from my high school um, and uh, at least 10 to 15 guys go division one every single year from that school and you can tell from the get-go who's going to go d1 even in seventh grade sometimes like these these people are just different they're different right they're built different and I knew they were built different because there's this drill in football called the Oklahoma drill if you don't know anything about it uh blessing upon you. If you do know about it, uh, you have PTSD from it, because here's what it is. You line up about 10 feet away from each other on your backs, and the second the coach blows the whistle, you have to turn over, hop up real quick, and go and hit the other person, and whoever is the last person standing wins. That's an Oklahoma drill, right? So seventh graders, that's what we had to do, right? On our backs, me, 5'7", 5'8", 100 pounds, maybe. And at that height and at that frame, super uncoordinated, might I add. And so I hop up real quick and I turn. And this kid who eventually went on to be the starting linebacker for Clemson, who's on the other side, uh, I turn around and boom, just get knocked back. And my coach, who was my best friend's dad, uh, saw all the potential in the world in me. Thank God, right? Like, that's what I needed at that point. I uh, said, hey, Trey, you're going to do it again because I see it in you. I'm like, I don't have it in me. He's like, no, I see it in you. Line back up. I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm never going to Oklahoma. And so he was like, blow the whistle, and I would roll over and bang, get hit again and again and again. 
And he was like, all right, new drill, new drill. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have these guys on this side and these guys on this side. We're going to practice uh, hitting the gap with the, with the football. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to line up right here. You're going to line up 10 feet over there. You're going to have the football, and your job is to just run over the other person. So again, it's me and my other friend who's maybe, you know, 4'11", 5 foot in 7th grade, maybe 70 pounds, maybe 60 pounds. It's us and a lot of guys like him versus all the guys who you know are going D1. And I remember we just kept hitting each other, and we all lost. And I would walk back to the line. I look at my buddy, and my buddy is sitting there with a the football gun, <laughs> just crying. And we didn't get a water break for a long period of time. What felt like days, probably five minutes, but what felt like days. And it just got to the point where every day at practice, I was getting a obliterated by these guys. And there was one day we even practiced with the JV. Right? And that's even next level. And it, you can just imagine how that went to the point where when I was in seventh hour, right, the last hour before school got out and the bell would ring and we would go to practice, I would see there would be like 30 seconds left on the clock and my leg would be shaking. And I just, I got so anxious and fearful about going to practice because it wasn't fun. I was just getting obliterated every day. I wasn't improving, right? There was no, like, grit in me to, like, I'm going to obliterate this guy, right? Like, that was physically impossible. Even if my mental fortitude told me I could, it was physically impossible. And I knew what lied ahead. I knew, I dreaded going to the locker room, right? Anytime I smell a locker room, I get PTSD now, right? A, a football locker room, right? That outdoor sweaty BO smell, I walk, I'm like, Where's Oklahoma? No, like, I, 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 I was so fearful that even before the event would happen, even before practice, seventh hour, I was anxious and fearful about even going to practice. At the end of my eighth grade year, the JV, the varsity coach, asked me if I would continue to play football because I had gained a little bit of coordination. I'd started to lift weights a little bit, and I was fast, and I could catch the ball. He was like, do you want to, would, would you be willing to play spring ball and stay on and move up to varsity with us? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm done. He's like, are you serious? I was like, I'm done. <laughs> and so I hung up my pads, and I haven't played football since eighth grade. All of that to say, have you ever been in that moment where at the moment, the thing you're scared of hasn't even arrived, but you just have this assumption of how it's going to go, that even before it gets here, you are anxious, you are fearful, you are worried. You, you, there's this moment where there's a little bit of panic in your heart, in your soul, and in your mind before the situation even gets there. You're scared of the unknown and how to change the current. If I could, I would have quit football. I would have quit football the first day of practice. My dad didn't let me quit. He made me tough it out. Here's something about fear, though. Fear can compel us to look into the future to predict only that which is the worst-case scenario, and then to live fearful of that worst-case scenario. And fear, when it's not corralled, I, want you, I think we have a slide for it. I want you to write this down or, or memorize or take a picture of it. Fear, when it's not corralled, it turns into worry. And here's what worry is. Worry is worthless. It can't change the past. It can't control the future. 
and it only wastes this moment. And so in a lot of our lives, we have this, this insane amount of fear going on. It's in our country, it's in our culture, it's in our world. And fear is not something that's new. Fear has been going on since the beginning, since Genesis. Fear is in our world, and so fear leads to worry. And again, worry is worthless. It can't change the past. It can't control the future. And it only wastes this moment. And here's the truth. We don't know what the future holds. You don't know what the future holds. And so we should be less concerned about the future and what might happen and more concerned on, what, on just doing what is right, trusting God for the future. Fear is an opportunity to turn to God, trust, and trust God. Fear is not always a sin. It is just a sign that we need to put our trust in God. Sometimes we talk about fear as a, the emotion of fear is a sin, right? Like, do not be fearful. God did not give us a spirit of fear. So anytime there's fear in our lives, it's from the enemy. Or it's just a very real emotion, right? If I'm in the ocean and I see a great white swimming up underneath me, I'm not going to be like, God did not give me the spirit of fear. He gave me the spirit of peace and of a sound mind, right? No, like, I am petrified and I'm getting out of the water. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about with circumstances, with the future of your life, your marriage, your kids, this country, whatever it is that you are fearful of. It should be a moment where you can turn to God to build trust in God. So how do we live the good life in the face of fear? Because fear is something I think we all struggle with to a degree. In the book of Revelation chapter 2, there's seven letters written to seven churches, seven prominent churches. These are not just letters that the Holy Spirit inspired these apostles to write. Jesus himself appeared before the disciple, the apostle John, while John was stranded on this island called Patmos. And Jesus appeared and said, John, write this letter word for word to these churches. So this is Jesus speaking. And then the, he's, last week we looked at the church of Ephesus, and this week we're going to look at the church of Smyrna. And in the church of Smyrna, Smyrna had a couple of different meanings. And the Hittite, the original founding of the city, it was the uh, city of the mother goddess. So, just to put it in uh, concept and pers- or context and perspective for you, it was built upon this worship towards this demon. That's what the city was built upon. That, and I can go r- down a rabbit hole of why they did it and all that stuff, and I'm going to be more than happy to tell you about that later, but that's really, for context purposes, all you need to know. It was built upon this worship to this demon goddess. And so, uh, and then in the Greek, and the uh, language they spoke when this t- letter was written, it was known as the city of myrrh, the city of sweet fragrance. So the reason they did that was because the the demon goddess they worshipped was the goddess Diana, and that goddess was the goddess of fertility. And you can imagine what they did in the temple to worship that god. It was a lot of debauchery going on in their Roman temples that they worshipped this demon goddess in. And so that was what it originally meant, and now it meant sweet and beautiful fragrance. They called that what was happening there a sweet and beautiful thing. But the redemptive nature of God is, if you remember, what the, one of the wise men brought to Jesus was that sweet and beautiful fragrance myrrh. 
And Jesus, if you think about the life of Jesus, how you get myrrh, you had to press it and crush it to get this liquid that smelled beautiful and gave beautiful fragrance to things. And so Jesus, on the redemptive narrative of this, was going to take that which was pagan and debauchery and was going to take that and says, I was crushed and pressed and my blood was spilled out so that way you can truly, eternally have a sweet and beautiful fragrance on your life. So Smyrna, the city of myrrh. The town was also known as the emperor or the town of emperor worship, meaning whenever Caesar would come into town, the whole town would gather, Jew and Gentile, Roman and Israelite, and they would gather and they would all say, Hail Caesar. And they would worship him. They would bow before him. Every Caesar had this mandate. He had to be worshipped as if he was God. Well, this church in Smyrna got to a point where they stopped bowing to any Lord other than Jesus, and it cost them. Let's see what Jesus had to say to this church. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, it says this. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? So what he's saying is to the pastor, the angel of the church, what he means is in that original language is pastor. So to the pastor of the church in Smyrna, write this. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested uh, for ten days, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus is talking to this church, and one of the last week we broke down verse 5 really heavily, and this week I think the key verse in this passage to this, this letter to this church is verse 10 and how it starts out, and it says, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Which leads me to my big thought this morning, and I'm going to kind of walk our way through this in just a second. If you want to take anything else away from this message, take this away. To live the good life, we must remember to be fearless in our faith. To live the good life, we must remember to be fearless in our faith. Let me just pause right here for a second. Because when we announced this series, The Good Life, I'm sure a lot of you had connotation of like, okay, he's going to tell me how to live the most fruitful and abundant life I could ever live, right? How do I invest my money, right? Because that's a real tension point that I'm always scared about, even looking at my bank account. Or how do I deal with this situation specifically? And many of us, maybe some of you, But I'm sure many of us, and if you go outside the walls of our church, if I were to say, hey, I have the secret to a good life, a lot of it has to do with, then how are you going to change my circumstances? But in actuality, every every letter we are going to read, it's not that Jesus says, and I'm going to turn your circumstance around for your good. He's saying, no, I'm going to radically transform your heart, your mind, and your soul to where you can handle anything. And that is the good life. 
The good life is not that you gain or rise in social status or economic status. The good life is when you are so content in the person of Jesus that nothing else matters. So to live the good life, what do I need to invest in, Trey? To live Jesus. To live the good life, we must be fearless in our faith. To live the good life, we must be fearless in our faith. Have you been crippled by fear? Have you let the fear of losing what is stop you from stepping into what could be? Are you scared of no longer being a Facebook Christian and having to be a face-to-face Christian? Sorry, it's too real. We all have fears. So how does our faith in God's word and God's spirit help us address and overcome our fears? There are a couple truths I want to extract from this passage that I think address the ability and the power in being fearless in our faith. Number one is this. Jesus is aware and present in your hardships. That should stir us and give us the confidence to be fearless in our faith. He is present and aware in your hardships. Verse 8, it says this. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation. I know I understand. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those that say they are Jews but are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Poverty, what does he mean by that? Because of these Christians, right, refuse, like we talk about poverty today. I'm sure some of you are like, were they poor in spirit? No. In this city, if you renounce Caesar as Lord, a lot of them didn't want any trouble with the Romans, so they literally fired them. If they owned businesses, they were canceled, right? Cancel culture is not something new. It's been happening since this time. So they were canceled. We're not going to their businesses anymore. So these people were literally poor, hard to find jobs. He goes, I know what it's like to be poor. I see you in your poverty. Because they refused to worship the demon god of that town. Because they refused to worship Caesar. They were let go of jobs. They were not spiritually poor. They were physically poor. But Jesus says, but you are rich. What does that mean? It means they have everything they need in Jesus. There are people all around the world who have next to nothing compared to what we have. And they have so much contentment and fulfillment in life because they have Jesus. And if you were to look at the scale socially or economically, you would be so much farther above them. But yet they are rich, according to the kingdom of God. Slander. There were cruel things said and false statements made and and, and abuse to these people most likely stemmed from the local Jews feeling threatened by this new growth of Christianity that was radically changing the lives of so many people and that was radically undoing everything their civilization was built upon, this people group was built upon. Orchestrated by the enemy. You go back to 1 and 2 Kings, you know that Baal, who was a very real demon, had prophets? The prophets of Baal, he had followers, he had people who did his work and taught his teachings. Baal had prophets. Satan also has men who do his will. The phrase of the 
uh, Satanistic church, which is not exclusive to his church, but is his message to men that people have bought into is this. Do what thou wilt. That is the mission statement of the church of Satan currently in America. That has also been the test of time of Satan's message to humanity to get us from fall to the, from the original design. Do what thou wilt. Do whatever you want. You have a fleshly desire to do something, go after it. And what Jesus is saying, he goes, I know what it's like to be poor. Jesus says, foxes have holes, hens have dens. But the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. He was homeless. Slander? You read any of the four Gospels, just a couple chapters in, you know that Jesus was slandered. His name was spat upon and run through the mud. Orchestrated by the enemy to tempt him, do what thou wilt. Right after Jesus was baptized, and he went to the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted. Oh, temp- Satan tempted him. And he goes, and I know what that's like. And I am aware, and I am present in your hardships. And because I am aware and because I am present, I give you victory. I am your victory. I am proof that victory is possible. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest, for we do not have a God and a Savior who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is aware and he is present in your times of trouble and in your times of hardships and need, you must, you, you just need to turn to him. Turn your attention to him. Can I say something very real? And I hope it doesn't come across as brash. But I think some of you need to understand Jesus, I see it, I've seen it in my own life. And I feel like Jesus was more willing to go to the cross than you and I are willing to go to the throne of grace. Now there was no rebuttal or refute. He was like, is there another way? No, there's not another way. Then I'm going. And God offers this help to you and to me, and he's like, come to the throne of grace. I know what it's like. I'm present, and I'm aware, and I'm here to help. And we're like, no, I got it. Come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may receive help and mercy in times of trouble. He's with you. He's aware and he's present in times of hardship. Let that give you confidence to live fearlessly in your faith. How about number two? How about this? We may not die for our faith, but we can die to ourselves so that others may see our Savior. I grew up in a church where we had a lot of missions conferences and missionaries from all over the place. And they'd be like, the American church, are you willing to die for your faith? And I'm like, I don't know. Right? I grew up in a Christian school. Grew up in a, in a pastor's home. The most amount of slander I ever got was just like, are you a PK? Yeah. That, that was about it, right? And so how do I reconcile with like the, Jesus is saying, do not be afraid for what you're about to suffer. For you're going to be thrown in jail for 10 days. In fact, Satan himself will throw some of you in jail for 10 days. He will use people, manipulate people, whisper in their ears to persecute the church. And we'd have these preachers come in and be like, are you willing to die for your faith? I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever get that opportunity. So 
And I used to say this prayer in middle school and in high school. And I think in college, God just revealed something to me. And I used to say, God, if, if my death will bring people closer to Jesus, then do, what you, do whatever you want. And then this, this f- point that I just made from Revelation chapter 2 is what I felt like God challenged me with. He goes, listen, in the country you live in, you will not face fear of death for your faith. Instead of dying for your faith, how about you die to yourself so that others may see your Savior? That is the challenge of the American church. You and I will not face persecution like those experiencing it all over the world. The challenge for you and me is not whether we will die for our faith. The challenge for you and me is whether we will die to ourselves so that others may see our Savior. Verse 10, it says this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He's not saying, do not fear, for I will deliver you. He goes, do not fear for what you're about to suffer. You will suffer. Behold, the devil, the enemy, is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Do you know that more Christians have been killed in the 20th and 21st century than all other centuries combined? in Asia, and in India, and in Africa, and South America. You're not going to hear about it on the news. But more Christians in the past two centuries have died for their faith than all other centuries combined. And you will never hear about it on the news. Why? Because the enemy knows that a persecuted church is a growing church. That when you try to kill Christianity, which means little, or Christians, which means little Christ, we have the tendency of our Savior that there is resurrection after crucifixion and that it comes back stronger and it spreads like wildfire. The greatest revival movements on this planet are all happening outside of North America where it is the safest and most convenient to worship our God. Millions are coming to know Jesus in China. Millions of people are coming to know Jesus in India, where it is all, in both of those places, you are suspect to be arrested if you are found proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And in the Middle East, if they catch you with a Bible, or believing and proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. He is God, not just a prophet or a good teacher, but he is God. You will be beheaded. So my challenge to you and my my challenge from Scripture to you is that you may not die for your faith, but will you at least look in the mirror or look up to heaven and say, I'm willing to die to myself so that others may see our Savior? I'll be fearless in that. I'll die to my pride. I'll die to my, 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 my ways, my addictions. I'll die to it all. If people could just get a glimpse of my Savior. Are you willing to do that at least, to die to pride, self-ambition, debauchery, lust of the flesh, eyes, and pride of life? We may not die for our faith, but we can die to ourselves so that others may see our Savior. 
my third and final thought is this. How can we live lives of fearless faith? Because we have victor and victory in Jesus for eternity. So let us live with fearless authority in the temporary. Before you were saved, I want you to know there was an order of things. God, holy, set apart. Sin, the enemy, doing whatever he can to make this prison as comfortable as possible to where you don't ever want to leave. And when you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and says, I believe you are the Son of God and God, you are God in the flesh, and I believe you lived a sinless life, that you died on the cross for my sins and all the wrath of the Father was put on you so there is no more wrath to those who put their faith in you. And I believe three days after you actually died, God dies. Three days after he actually dies, he rises from the grave, lives now, and calls each and every one of us unto him. The pecking order changes to where it is not God, sin, the enemy, the devil, Satan, and his followers, and then you beneath it, captured and chained in this prison, that you are now here under God, but the enemy is under you. And so now you have authority in your life to look at sin, to look at addiction, to look at the enemy. And when temptation arises, you have the capacity and the ability and authority, not in and of your own strength, but because of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, that you can resist the devil and flee from him. Because you are not trapped and oppressed by sin anymore. You are free, and that thing is underneath you. There's a new pecking order that you have authority of. And not just authority in the, in the temporary, but confidence in the eternity. So when the Spirit says you can conquer fear, right? Verse 11, it says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the Spirit enables us to conquer fear Live out the message of Jesus and preach the message of Jesus. Proclaim the message of Jesus. What does it mean by the second death? Let me explain it like this. If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. Let me explain what that means. There's a physical birth. And if there is never a spiritual birth, you will die in the flesh and you will spend eternity dying in the spirit. There is a physical birth, which you and I have because we are all living and breathing today. And there is a spiritual birth, meaning you are born again into the newness of Christ. You are a new creation. You are a son and a daughter of God. There will only be a physical death, and your spirit will live on for eternity with Jesus. The essence of who you are. And if you are in Jesus, do not fear for what you're going to suffer in this world. Have confidence that he's present and aware in your suffering. Be willing to die to self so that others may see the Savior and have confidence in the fact that no matter what happens in this life, our eternity is settled. We have authority in the temporary over the enemy. So come wind, come storm, come bondage, come whatever. Do not be afraid in the suffering that's about to come.
Do not be fearful. To live a good life, we must have fearless faith. There's a story, it's a true story from a missionary who visited Russia in the early 2000s and he met this this man who started a house church in Russia where it is illegal to preach the gospel and he didn't intend to do it but he just wanted to teach his boys the Bible so many people just came and said can you teach us as well and next thing you know there's about 100 people meeting this guy's home this guy very real story right imagine you in a godless area, one of the only ones who could even somewhat even possibly interpret the scripture, and people are desperate for it. They're desperate for hope and good news. And you have a family. And while this man is sitting at the, his, the head of the table just teaching these people, the police come in and they arrest this man, drag him out of his home in front of his five-year-old and his seven-year-old boys. They take him to this prison and they beat this man. They starve this man. And there's a day where they're allowed, they let his family come visit, and this man is telling the story, and again, it's a very true story. This wife and her two boys are waiting for their father to step out of prison. And all this time, he could have gone free if he would have just said, I renounce my faith in the Messiah, and it is all fake. But for three years, this man stayed in prison. So his boys, which were five and seven, are now eight and ten. And this shell of a man, this walking corpse, this walking skeletal structure, is plopped on the table before them. He can't even walk. They had to carry them, and they put him on the table. He's so malnourished, he can barely walk. And his wife and his two boys just look at this man. And his wife secretly tries to slip him the Bible. And the police officers catch it, and they begin to beat the man in front of the boys. And the wife is escorted away and given a scolding to, and they say, you have two more minutes. And this man says, I remember I was this close after seeing them do that to me in front of my family to renouncing my faith. But my son, my son leaned over to me, my 10-year-old, and he says, Dad, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Why? Because he has set his son up with generational wealth. Why? Because he has accomplished everything that a, 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 you know, a worldly father should accomplish. No. Because he was suffering for the gospel, for the message of Jesus. And his son, his 10-year-old son, what maturity to look at his dad dead in the eyes and say, I'm so proud of you. And they picked the dad up. Could you imagine? You know, dads are larger than life figures. And having to watch these police officers who just beat your dad have to pick your dad up because he can't walk and carried him back into his prison cell. The man stayed in prison for 18 years. And he was eventually released. Not because he renounced his faith. God did miraculous stories. That's a longer story. But he was released and he found his sons in his 20s only to find that his sons had started preaching the gospel. And that they joined together, they hugged, and there was no let's play it safe because of what we suffered. It's like, he said, and now we have so many people, we're reaching so many people with the gospel of Jesus. That's fearless faith. 
my challenge to you, my challenge to our church, that man is living the good life. He has passed down his lineage, are now fearless warriors for the gospel. I challenge you, are you living a life of fearless faith? To live the good life, we must remember to be fearless in our faith. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I don't know what God is speaking to you. My, my belief is he's saying something, challenging something. My advice to you is that when God speaks, do not let your spine stiffen. Instead, let your hands open. Do not reject the truth that God has called you to accept. And when you accept it, let me warn you in advance, it will change everything about you. Your priorities, how you live your life, how you raise your kids. To live the good life, we must have fearless faith. I'm going to give you a moment. So number one, just sometimes we view this word as a nasty word, but just to repent for the, fear, for the fearful life you have lived and ask God to lead you in a fearless faith and to strengthen your faith moving forward for your family, for yourself, for your kids, for your grandkids. For generations to come. Heavenly Father, give our church fearless faith. God, this church will not be built by outreach events. This church will not be built by good marketing or Social awareness, this church will grow and be built because the believers, the congregants who gather here that consider themselves part of this flock, of this local church, are fearless in their faith. The importance and the weight of the gospel and your message that eternity is at stake. And out of a response of what you have done in our lives, we respond accordingly with obedience fearlessly and faithfully, no matter what the cost. Jesus, it's all about you. Do something new in these people's lives. For behold, you are making ways in the wilderness and springs in the wasteland. Church, do you not perceive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we respond in song and worship?